As you know, beloved listeners, there's that malodorous stuff that gets stuck to the soles of your shoes and then there's the Teflon-coated politician and no matter how much dirt gets thrown at them, nothing sticks. And that brings me to a new book called Sticky and the field of study that investigates surfaces and the science of rubbing, sliding, friction and lubrication. And it's a new term for me and I guess for you, tribology. Now, my next guest says that once she started seeing things from the point of view of stuff that happens on surfaces, she couldn't stop. Laurie Winkless is a physicist, science writer and author of Sticky, The Secret Science of Surfaces, published by Bloomsbury. We welcome you to our little wireless program for what will be an interview devoid of friction. Laurie, how did you get interested in surfaces in the beginning? (laughs) I kind of have a professional background in surface science. So I worked at the National Physical Laboratory in the UK and our research there, my research there was on functional materials. So they're materials that do something extra beyond just kind of physically being present. Perhaps they conduct electricity or they harvest heat energy. So materials has been a topic that I've been fascinated in with for a very long time and I've received lots of training in. But really the the genesis of this book came about kind of not really planned. It was a number of different things that uh, triggered the idea. And, And one of which was, you know, you may, if you're a train taker, you may have heard sometimes that there's an announcement about leaves on the line causing havoc on the rails. And it's true, leaves really do cause havoc because they form this very waxy, low friction surface. That means the wheels of the train can't grip onto the steel rails. And that kind of got me thinking about how important friction is and how we often don't really think of it or, you know, we really don't think of it at all, often until it's no longer there. So if it's suddenly an icy day and you don't have grip on your shoes or your tyres, you become very aware of the importance of friction in its absence. Um, And that kind of made me think about the role that friction has played in the way that we've built the modern world. And friction and, and the interactions that happen on surfaces, they just, ideas for, you know, how I could tell that story just kept coming to me, really. Um, You've told it very, very well. The one area that I think everyone listening would know about from personal experiences is it does, of course, involve, involve car tyres. Laurie, mm. introduce us to the field of tribology. And why is it so integral to the way the world works? So the field of tribology can be considered and is often described as the science of rubbing and scrubbing. Um, And arguably it's been around for a very long time. And we as humans have actually been manipulating friction. So manipulating the forces that operate when two things slide along one another. We have, a, we have evidence that the ancient Egyptians used water as a lubricant, as a way to reduce friction to move heavy objects on sand. And in the Roman times, they used animal fat and other waxes, other naturally occurring waxes to, to do the same. So we've really been tribologists for a very, very long time, but it's become more of a science in the last kind of well, maybe even as long as 70 or 80 years ago, when we really started to develop industrial lubricants. So um, 
compounds that can be used to control friction at different scales. So every car, every bike, every machine you can think of has a lubricant in there and will have had a tribologist behind its design. The ability to measure what happens when solid meets fluid must have given us a lot of highly specialised products. Absolutely. Every, every lubricant really has a specific job to do. Um, and you can find lubricants that work at all scales. You know, we're talking about lubricants that even they, they're so far beyond what we can picture with our eyes. We're talking about just a few atoms in size. We can create dry lubricants that are just about atoms sliding along one another. And right up at the other end of the scale, we've created lubricants that can make sure that our Mars rovers can operate without breaking down. So there really are these compounds available for everyone. So when I used to, in happier times, fly on Concorde, that would have had a, a lubricant to facilitate supersonic flight. And uh, I learned from you that that little spinning disc in the computer hard drive also needs some help. Yes, everything that moves needs help. And <laughs> that is the truth of it. Because if we don't have something in there, and it might be a, a liquid lubricant, or it might be like in the case of Concorde, it might actually be a coating that's built into the aircraft. If there isn't something there, friction can build up and either generate huge amounts of heat, or it can even cause components to break down. So in a hard drive, where we have a very close interaction between what we call the head, which is a piece of the hard drive that reads the information that's stored on the disk. Um, the interaction between those two is so intimate that if we are not careful, we could cause damage to one or the other and damage our hard drive. So tribologists have designed coatings to, to keep that interaction as smooth as possible. I've been banging on about climate change for 40 years and uh, this is important for friction because, as you point out, we need uh, the proper lubricants to keep the wind turbines turning. And mm. you tell me, and this is astonishing, that each more year more than a fifth of the world's total energy consumption goes towards overcoming friction. Absolutely. Friction is really something that we can think of as a loss of energy and it, it manifests itself in kind of an obvious way in the fuel that you use to, to power a vehicle. So that might be a boat or it might be a car or, you know, in the case of wind turbine, um, it might be batteries that are harvesting uh, the energy. Um, and friction is an energy loss. So that's why we, are, we try so hard to control it and minimise it where possible. Um, about a 30% of all energy use in the transport sector is actually a frictional loss. It's a loss of energy due to friction. So if we can find ways to reduce the amount of energy lost by friction, it means that the fuels that we still use, unfortunately, the fossil fuels that we still rely on, can give us more for less with for a smaller footprint. So understanding friction and being able to, to control it has a, a massive part to play in our more sustainable future. You've pointed out that uh, early experiments helped uh, build the pyramids with all those and drag obelisks around for heaven's sake. Mm. Uh, but it also, an early comprehension helped drive the industrial revolution. Yes, absolutely. Um, we have kind of been developing these lubricants for a very long time, but I would argue that without 
a really focused effort on, on understanding friction, we wouldn't have the railways. Um, there have been some inventions, like for example, I'm thinking of one by uh, an engineer called Elijah McCoy. And in the 1870s or thereabouts, he actually invented a lubricator that would continuously distribute a, a, a mix of different oils through the moving components of railway engines. And what that meant in practical terms is that railway engines didn't have to stop as often for maintenance stoppages. So it improved the efficiency of the railway system. And that meant that for both freight and passengers, railways then became the go-to option. They were a reliable way to, to move around. So the invention and the understanding that we have to manage the way our mechanical systems work, we have to minimise the friction between them. That's what gave us the Industrial Revolution, I would argue. And later, of course, it would have helped Henry Ford with his uh, pioneering efforts on the assembly line. Now, OK, Aboriginal paintings on rock walls in the Northern Territory and the Kimberley have survived for, well, 20,000 years. Do we know how the ochres used have managed to stay stuck in place for so long? The simple answer to that is is no, we don't. Um, we do know that there is uh, a process that we call desert varnish. So this is a, a process that happens kind of naturally in in some in some parts of in some environments, I should say. And we think that when the ochre is in place on a rock and say that rock is quite sheltered, we know that the the rock and the ochre is made of the same thing, right? So in, in theory, you would imagine that. Um, you, if the if the if the rock breaks down, then the ochre breaks down too. Um, and this desert varnish, it's a very thin coating, right? And we, it has similar compounds to what's already in the rock. And by that, I, I mean iron oxides and things like that. But it also has very high concentrations of other compounds like silica and aluminium. And at the moment, the idea, the theory, is that the only way those particular compounds could get onto a rock wall is through the wind. So the dust and the sand are being picked up by the wind and somehow deposited on the rock face. Now, we do not understand what happens to then transform this dust layer into this glassy, very thin substrate that seems to hold uh, rock art in place. Like, we really have no idea. Some people think it might be something to do with a fungi or something, or perhaps there's a reaction between, I think it's the silica and the water, but we really, really don't know. Earlier, we spoke about Teflon, which coats are frying pans and politicians. I had no idea that its birth was in the atomic bomb and the Manhattan Project. Yeah, it certainly was. And it was something I hadn't realised too, because, you know, you'll often hear Teflon talked about as if it was invented in the space industry. You know, it was invented during the Apollo missions. But no, it was invented during the Manhattan Project of the 1940s. And it was used there really because it was incredibly resistant to corrosion. So they used it as a coating for the inside of, of storage vessels. And, and then it became something that we use in our frying pans. So Teflon aided in the development of Little Boy, heavens above. Certainly it, did. Yeah. Uh, this is Radio National. LNL, my guest is Laurie Winkless. Teflon, is that one of the least sticky surfaces we have? 
It is. It is one of the lowest friction surfaces that we've ever produced. Um, there's a, a number that we use a lot in physics and engineering, which is called the coefficient of friction. And it's a number that tells you how easily two surfaces will slide along one another. And if you have two pieces of Teflon, that coefficient, the, its number is 0 0.04. And usually the closest you get to zero, the least slippery, the, the lowest friction is. So Teflon is right up, Teflon is right up in there as a, one of the lowest friction materials we've ever made. I live on a farm and we've got a lot of geckos wandering around, wandering, around, <laughs> wandering around the windows. How does the lizard do it? The lizard is just a magician. <laughs> um, the gecko's foot has evolved in an incredibly complex array of features. Um, we tend to call it a hierarchical structure, and it, all that means is just structures of different sizes working together. So if you look at the gecko foot originally, you've got four or five toes, depending on the species. Those toes are very strong. Um, they often have claws on them, so that allows them to cling onto a lot of things. But you mentioned glass. Claws are not going to help you cling onto gas, glass. So if you look at the toes of a gecko, and we've known about this for a long time, they're covered in these kind of flaps of skin, um, and they're called lamellae. And the original thinking was that those flaps of skin were very flexible and they helped to conform to even very smooth surfaces. But as we've developed more and more microscopes over the years, and we've been able to look in closer detail at the gecko foot, we see that those, those flaps of skin are actually covered in a very dense forest of hairs. And then if you look even closer at those hairs, you find that they actually each have a very bad case of split ends. So each hair is split into all of these other hairs. And these split ends are tiny, just a few atoms in width. And what that means is that the gecko can get its foot into such intimate contact with infinite, almost any surface you can imagine, that the surface and the tip of this hair is separated by no more than one nanometer. This is many tens of thousand times smaller than a human hair. And that intimate contact taps into a force, a force called the van der Waals interaction. So they're effectively atomic engineers. They're actually doing chemistry. They're playing with electrons as they climb across the glass. Before I allow you to free yourself from the program, uh, let's go to sport because we're reducing sure. friction can mean the difference between, well, gold medals and no medals. But specially designed swimsuits were introduced in the 2000 Sydney Olympics. And I remember it being a, a cause of considerable controversy. Yeah, they were very controversial. These were the kind of full body suits that we saw. Um, and they're, you know, full high neck, long sleeved, long legs, very different from the tiny pants <laughs> that we usually associate with the Olympics. And they caused such consternation because they did seem to be able to reduce drag. They seemed to give swimmers that wore them the upper hand that they could actually swim faster. Now, there was a lot of kind of, I guess, PR or marketing around what was going on and how these swimsuits worked. And there was a lot of like, oh, they take inspiration from shark skin. And shark skin really is incredibly clever. There are structures on there that really do play with drag and they help to accelerate sharks through the water. But lots of research on the material since then has shown that they don't really have anything in common with shark 
shark skin at all. Um, the way that these swimsuits, it appears, uh, were reducing drag is effectively that they were holding the swimmer in a much straighter, more streamlined position. So they were streamlining them and they were holding their core muscles, which meant that the swimmer didn't have to work as hard to do that. So they could put more energy into their arms. Um, so it did, they did work. They really did reduce drag, but perhaps not for the reasons that the very excited marketing people would tell you. You are a particularly fascinating guest, Laurie, and uh, I'd like to apply adhesive to you and keep you around, but uh, perhaps we can meet again. I've been talking to Laurie Winkless, the author of Sticky, The Secret Science of Surfaces, and it's published by Bloomsbury. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.